0: Uh, It is good to be here with you uh, this morning. Uh, Four years ago, we sent out a group uh, to plant this church here in Sunnyvale, and uh, it's great to see how many people are here, and you guys survived, almost, right? They say, you know, if you can get past five, six years, you know, that's... uh, Uh, you know, a sign that you will survive as a church, and uh, I have no doubt that this church will continue to thrive, flourish, and uh, be salt and light here uh, in the Silicon Valley. And so we're very grateful uh, to be here with you uh, to uh, share uh, the the Word of God. Um, I'm also very encouraged that I'm part of the Missions Month uh, for uh, Renewal, Um, and Uh, The reason why I'm so grateful, so encouraged by this is that, you know, when I moved up to the Bay Area about 10 years ago to plant Radiance, I was really surprised by how little churches and Christians seem to focus on missions and evangelism. That, in fact, taking an entire month or so to just focus on this topic alone uh, seemed like it was very, uh, very rare instead of being normal. And uh, the thing is, I became a, a Christian at a church that was heavily invested in world missions and stressed the importance of sharing the gospel with as many people as possible whenever you could. And this church sent missionaries around the world, had short-term mission trips that were filled every year, 20, 30, 40 people that would go out, and they shared the gospel in their community as well. And it was an immigrant Korean church, and I would say there were some kind of rough edges, uh, so to say, to their style of evangelism. Uh, For example, they would go to the local Korean supermarket with bright red vests that said, don't go to hell, right? And I know here in the Bay Area, we would never do anything like that, right? And maybe we, you know, throw our noses up in the air, like, you know, that is so, you know, uh, so beneath us to do something like that. But in their context, context, somehow it worked, And we saw people come to faith. And I remember when it was my turn to get baptized, I got saved at that church. There was a line of 30, 40 people actually getting ready to be baptized. And so something was working. And in fact, my faith as a new Christian grew as a result of the evangelistic fervor of that church. Because for all the doubts that I had going into Christianity... The one thing that I could not shake was the fact that there was this large group of people, and it was a sizable church, uh, close to maybe a 1,000 people at that time, but a large group of people who seemed to be genuinely living out their belief in God, even to the point of, of leaving the comforts of their, their church, their suburban life, to go share the gospel in countries that I've never even heard of before. And many of them would go out on the weekends and make complete fools of themselves. At least in my mind, that's what they were doing, right? And I think many of us would agree with that. But the results could not be argued. That daily, right, they were bringing people to faith. And how many churches today can say the same thing about the addition of new believers into the fold. And so that was, you know, kind of my background. And so after seminary, I joined Acts Ministries, which Renewal is also a a part of. And the reason why I decided to join AMI was largely because of its emphasis on missions the opportunity to be able to partner together to help fulfill the great commission uh, with other like-minded leaders and, and and pastors and the idea that the book of acts should be the normative expression of christianity is something that resonated with me and i hope that it resonates with you a- as well and the reason why again i wanted to join him i was working with churches that share this same core spiritual dna now Unfortunately, I think over the years, I think including myself, we have diluted what normal biblical Christianity was meant to be. We now confuse our personal salvation as being the sole purpose of the gospel. But that is actually not what Jesus taught. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, after Jesus had been resurrected, he taught his disciples how the entire Old Testament, from the law to the prophets and even the Psalms, is fulfilled in him. And this is what we read in Luke 24. And I think this is very important for us uh, to understand how the scriptures ought to be read. 24, verses 45 through 47. Then he opened their minds, meaning Jesus, to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Now, I think a lot of churches, a lot of Christians, we stop there, right? When we talk about being gospel-centered or Christ-centered in our preaching, in our reading of the scriptures. But there's actually a second part that Jesus makes very clear, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. He adds that second part, Right? to this idea of a Christ-centered approach to the scriptures, that in his name, the gospel would be proclaimed from where you are to the ends of the earth. Normative, biblical Christianity, Christ-centered Christianity must include the proclamation of the gospel to all the nations, beginning with where we find ourselves. And we have actually no impetus, no right to change what the totality of the scriptures describe as being the normative pattern of the Christian life. Missions and evangelism is not some small part of the Bible. It is actually its essence, right? It is part of the essence of what the Bible talks about. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is that the whole of scripture, understood by the mind that has been opened by his spirit, finds its fulfillment both in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, along with the mission of God that now must flow out of those life-changing events. And so when the prophet Habakkuk looks forward to the day when the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, how do you imagine that's going to be fulfilled? What is Habakkuk looking forward to? Well, he's looking forward to the day when millions of Christians will boldly proclaim what Christ has done wherever they go right that is how that will be fulfilled and that's the very example that we see in the lives of the early christians who turned the world upside down as they boldly proclaim the message of the gospel and this morning i want to look at one of those examples uh this morning in the book of romans a uh, person that we i'm sure we all know well the apostle paul and so this is going to be our main text uh, romans 1 13 through 17 the word of the lord for us this morning I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians or Gentiles, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And, you know, I think as we think about this text, most of us would agree, probably all of us would agree, that the most difficult thing in the Christian life is to share the gospel, Right? Prayer, maybe a distant second. Reading the word, a distant third. But the hardest thing, which we just learned is the essence, one of the core essence of the Christian faith. Sharing the gospel is something that is incredibly difficult to do. And so as we go through this text, we want to look at three keys to to proclaiming Christ boldly and not being ashamed of the message of Christ and uh, just a, a rough skeleton of the message moving forward first is to live a life of joyful obedience a uh, second we're going to tr- uh, maybe turn these uh, two points uh, on uh, reverse understanding God's prerogative in salvation and finally resolving uh, not to be ashamed of the of the gospel making that resolution in your heart now The first key uh, living a life of joyful obedience is paramount, and I think one of the mistakes that we have a tendency to make, especially in the modern church, is to overemphasize our freedoms. And downplay our responsibilities as Christians. And uh, to be honest, I think this ha- has led to some irresponsibility on all of our, our parts, especially in the area of, of missions and evangelism. Most of us see evangelism cur- currently, the preaching of the gospel, as an option, right? It's, an extra, it's extra credit, right? This is for the really holy Christians, right? Maybe those evangelists that are out there, and it's carry on top right but it's so much more than that and paul we see he sees it in a totally different light and what he writes is he says i am under obligation to preach the gospel to everyone that i am me and the world in paul's time uh, was in his mind was divided into very simple categories greeks non-greeks wise and, and foolish and essentially what paul is saying Is that he has an obligation to preach the gospel to all of humanity and he understood his obligations and he took ownership of them and i think in our day and age many of us we don't feel obligated to much in terms of our faith right there's other obligations that weigh on us work family all these other responsibilities but for some reason the obligations to christ seem more minimal Uh, but when we look at the early church, early, early believers like Paul, they understood their responsibility in, in full, and they understood their responsibility to be able to take this message to the ends of the earth. And this is actually what Paul says. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. But I want us to think about that. Though I'm free, right, right, Though I don't have to do this, something deep within me compels me, and I make a slave to everyone for what purpose, what reason, so that I may win as many as possible. There are times, brothers and sisters, when we have to sacrifice our freedoms in order to win people to Christ, right? For missionaries, that means sacrificing the comforts and luxuries of life here in the States, and to make themselves slaves to another culture. For those of us who are here in the Bay Area, we're also under the very same obligation to share the gospel with the people around us, even though it feels confining at times, even though it feels limiting in in certain ways. And, And not only should we recognize our obligations, we should also note the attitude that we ought to have in regards to that obligation. And I realize that, you know, whenever a message like this is shared, people start to feel really guilty. And that's not my point, right? My point is not to make you feel like, oh my God, right, I am so guilty of this. And because that's not going to bear fruit in your life because the attitude that we see in Paul is that he's actually eager to do these things, right? There's a a joyful obedience and eagerness to do these things. It's not a heavy burden around his neck. It's not something that he hates to do, but he is also eager to preach the gospel. And, you know, sometimes I think it's hard to see how you can be eager to fulfill an obligation. That is, until you throw love into the equation. For example, I have an obligation to be a good father, to provide for my family, to lead them spiritually. But you know, on on the good days when I really love them, right, I am eager to fulfill those responsibilities. I love to do it, right? It's something that brings joy in my heart. And when we love people the way that God wants us to, we'll also have that very same eagerness to fulfill our obligations as Paul demonstrates to the, the Romans. Now, the second point is understanding the prerogative of God in our salvation. And I realize that when we talk responsibility, a lot of people don't realize where that responsibility ends, their responsibility ends, and where God's responsibility begins. And I think this is one of the reasons why so many people actually have a very difficult time sharing the gospel. Because in a place like this, among people like this, I would say a vast majority of us, we are afraid of failure, right? We don't like to fail, and certainly we don't like to be rejected. But can I be honest with you? I'm sure we all realize this already. Evangelism, work in that, you know, in that light, it's going to fail more times than succeed, right? Unless you have a very strong gifting in evangelism, Right? I would say nine out of ten times conversations probably aren 't going to go that well, right, and it 's pretty rare these days, especially in a place that is so secular as the barrier, to bring someone to christ and so there is a, a predisposition to failure already ahead of us, and so I think this is what keeps many people from actually walking into this uh, this area with joyful obedience and How do we minimize this? Well, the responsibility that we have actually is simply to share the gospel, to love our neighbor. And that's actually where it ends. Because in terms of salvation, the only one who has the final say, who is the author of it, who brings people into a saving knowledge of himself is God through his Holy Spirit. That is it. And, you know, when I, you know, first learned, uh, I guess, more of a Calvinistic view on, on salvation, I thought, you know, there's no way. Why would, you know, God, you know, choose people out of their foreknowledge? And I remember one professor sharing with me why that is so freeing in the area of evangelism. Because he told me, you know, you can share your faith and many times you'll be rejected. But know that there are people that God has already chosen beforehand, right? There are some that are already predisposed, right, uh, to receiving the gospel. And because you know that, now you can leave the results up to God and you can share the gospel boldly. And for some reason, you know, that like dawned on me as, you know what? You know, I thought reform people did just read the Bible, right? And that's all they did. But I realized if you think about these things the right way, It brings clarity to the gospel, and it brings boldness to your preaching because there are people out there that God's already moving in, right? There's already a guarantee that he will bring some to salvation, and it is God's prerogative who gets saved first, who gets saved second, who gets saved last. And this is what Paul is talking about, first to the Jews, and then to the Gentiles, and as Paul presents, you know, this liberating truth about salvation, uh, we recognize that this is what fuels him in the long run. Because when you look at Paul's record of bringing people to faith, it's pretty spotty. Actually, there are some places where many respond uh, to the message of the cross, and then there are some where only a few uh, come to faith. And yet, Paul maintained his boldness wherever he went. That did not waver. And I think it's because he understood without a shadow of a doubt, right? I have finished my part of this equation. Now it's up to God. And God will bring those who need to come to faith. And, and, and as long as we're able to look at Christianity and evangelism in, in that way, it mitigates our our sense of failure. It takes away uh, the the disappointments that we often encounter as we're trying to uh, share our our faith with those whom we love. And, you know, till the very end, I I think there's always a chance. And, you know, I've seen, you know, some incredible, incredible uh, works of salvation. I remember uh, my wife, um, she had a, a grandmother that she dearly loved who was very strongly Buddhist, and uh, we didn't know how we were going to share the gospel, you know, as she was getting ready to, to pass away. And remember, I remember to this day being in that hospital room with, with Mira, and uh, you know, she was with her grandmother in the last moments, and um, she was going in and out of sleep, and there wasn't a lot of time, but in that brief window w- where there was some clarity of thought, I remember my wife holding her grandmother's hand and saying, Grandmother, you have to believe in Christ, you have to believe in, in Jesus do you believe in him, right? And I think, like, her grandmother got tired of her, right? She said, yes, I'll believe, right? Just leave me alone. Let me go to sleep. Let me go off in peace. And, you know, you might question, you know, a deathbed conversion like that. But I remember uh, when Mira's aunt came into that room, uh, her grandmother's daughter, she said, I could feel the presence of God in that room and you know as she was wrestling with her mother's death and again she was very strongly buddhist as well as she was wrestling with her mother's death she said she saw angels in that room covering her and so there's always a chance isn't there why well because it's god who is at work right and we don't need to be discouraged We don't need to fall under the weight and the burden of trying to be responsible for every single person that we're sharing the gospel with. We do our part, we fulfill our obligations, and we know that God will do the rest. Now, this leads us to our third point, and I think this is probably the one that is most difficult for us, and that is simply dealing with our shame. Right? And I think that is uh, ultimately at the end, which is what, what becomes very, very difficult. Now, the very fact that Paul writes this tells us that there are things about the gospel that will bring a shame in the eyes of the world. As he tells us, the message of the cross is foolishness. Right? It was back then, and it is the same case today. There has never been a time when the gospel has been easy to share. Okay, I think in our minds we have, you know, some, some, I would say, snobbery in terms of chronology. We assume, oh, you know, people knew less back then. It was much easier to share the gospel way back when, right? But you read the writings of Aristotle, Plato, right? I think they're pretty smart people, actually, right? I think it was just as hard to share the foolishness of the gospel then as it is today. And the very notion of God becoming man, dying on the cross for our sin, being resurrected on the third day, ascending to heaven, and then coming back again, it is a crazy message, right? It is absolutely crazy. And, you know, before I received Christ into my life, I thought Christians were the most delusional, unrealistic The most anti-intellectual group of people on on the planet. And in the face of science and reason, who in the world could believe such nonsense? Now, there's an old adage, right? If people are going to think you're crazy, right, well, then leave them with no doubt, right? Leave them with little doubt. They're already thinking it, right? Why not then share the gospel with them at least once, right? I'm not saying, you know, every time you meet your coworker, right, to share the gospel each and every day. What I am advocating for and I think this is reasonable, at least once in your relationship with someone, right? Because they're not going to receive Christ without someone articulating the gospel, right? That much is clear how can they believe, right, unless someone shares, unless someone preaches, and how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so I think that's a reasonable ask, something that the Lord, I believe, would ask of us. At least once in your relationship with someone that you care for, articulate the gospel, even though you know they think you're going to be crazy, or, or you are crazy. And... As we think about, you know, why we don't do these things, yeah, there are a lot of cultural biases that make it very, very difficult for us to share the gospel, and uh, I think we know uh, many of these uh, biases that are around us. Uh, not only anti-intellectual, but you know, at least living here in the Bay Area, one thing that I'm uh, keenly aware of is that in a place where inclusivity is so important, the gospel seems very exclusive, doesn't it? And in a place that that talks about tolerance, again Christianity seems uh, rather intolerant. And, and these are the barriers uh, that we all are, are keenly, aware of. And, you know, some years ago, I did realize, uh, I think, what was taking the place of the proclamation of the gospel in places like the Bay Area. And it was hard for me to wrestle with this and even to come to a, a conclusion about these things. But I, I realized the matters of social justice, or what people refer to as the social gospel, has become the replacement For the clear articulation of the message of Christ. And and though I saw the tides coming, I didn't realize how strong those waves were. And what's happened uh, in in churches, uh, I would say, that are beginning to lean in this way. Instead of these social justice being an essential outworking of the gospel, what we're beginning to see is that those two things are now pitted against one another And Christianity is becoming increasingly divided into two camps, those who care for matters of justice and those who care for salvation, those who are mainly concerned about alleviating a person's present suffering versus a concern for people to be delivered from their eternal suffering. And admittedly, I would say 20, 30 years ago, the church was far more focused on saving souls while ignoring or virtually ignoring people's physical needs and, you know, that was not a healthy place either. I remember, you know, going to a, a homeless feeding, and uh, this this woman from this church that was very hot evangelistically, she said, if they don't receive Christ, they don't eat. Right? And I thought, okay, that can't be right. <laughs> that doesn't seem, you know, like a very loving thing to do. Uh, and I think because of certain attitudes like that, Uh, the pendulum began to swing. And unfortunately, the pendulum has swung very far the other way, where we address social injustice, but we fail to look at the spiritual roots of those problems. So we're passionate now about justice, but lukewarm about evangelism. We don't really care about these things. Failing to recognize that evangelism and justice are inseparably linked because God cares about an individual's, the number of hairs on their head, as well as the eternal fate of their soul. And if the church could be as passionate about evangelism as we are passionate about justice, I think it would be a recipe for revival. I really do. If you could find the middle ground the middle ground that I believe Jesus and the scriptures espouse, then I believe something wonderful would begin to break out in our communities and in our churches. And, you know, from the perspective of a loving God, there is no separation between the physical needs of his children and their spiritual needs. He cares for us and he cares for this world through and through. But somehow what we've done is we have made a distinction for God and have decided that our need for daily bread outweighs our need for daily forgiveness. Andy Crouch, he, he writes this about the imbalance that we see in, in today's church. And why we have become ashamed of the gospel. Using actually justice as a, as a hiding cloak around our shame. He says this, meeting the physical needs of the poor wins attention and affirmation from a watching world. Naming the spiritual poverty of a world enthralled to false gods provokes defensiveness and derision from those who do not even believe there is a God. Disaster relief and economic development seem like achievable goals that bring people together. Religious claims to know the one true God seem like divisive mysteries that drive people apart. Our secular neighbors care, many like never before, about relieving human need. And more of them than ever before are indifferent or hostile to the idea that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and the one who meets the deepest human need. I think he is spot on with that observation of current American Christianity. Right? We have divorced these things apart from one another. And under the guise of justice, We hide our shame of the gospel. Instead of seeing one as a way to get to the end goal, right, we simply hide behind it. And in short, justice is cool, but proclaiming the gospel is not. And it never will be, actually, right? It never has been, and it never will be. But justice without the gospel is not some innocuous common good, justice that is unchecked can actually become an enemy of God. History, especially history in the 20th century, long before many of you were born, has taught us that lesson over and over and over again. The killing fields of Cambodia, the millions who died under Stalin, that was actually in the name of justice, unchecked by a living God. And the reason why this happens is that secular ideas of justice It plays to the human heart in its natural state. And what does that mean? Well, in its natural state, the human heart becomes emboldened by the applause of men. And it tends to shrink in cowardice at the prospect of shame. Right? And what Jesus teaches us repeatedly is to avoid the applause of men at all costs and to face shame boldly. He turns that paradigm upside down. Because you see, religious hypocrites and those who act justly for only man's approval are actually made of the very same ilk. They're the same person wrapped up in different clothes, actually. And I think that's the irony. And so, as Christians, we do some things in common with the world but we do them for uncommon purposes. And so can we share our food with the hungry so that we can point them to the bread of life? Can we provide clean water to the thirsty in order to lead them to the wells of living water? Can you fight for the oppressed so that you might have an opportunity to show them the only one that can truly set them free? This is... The balance, it's not even moderation. This is the balance, what we call the radical middle in AMI. You you know, you're going through the membership class. The radical middle that we're trying to find. And justice, it is an important manifestation of the gospel because it deals with man's horizontal relationship with one another. And Jesus, he did come to bring peace among men. Yet for the Christian, what we understand is that true peace among men cannot occur until man's vertical relationship with God is reconciled through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Justice among men is a pipe dream, right? It can never happen unless you first have peace with God. Those two things must go hand in hand. And more than ever, we need to be reminded that the gospel needs to be shared boldly, even while we serve the world compassionately and you know, I want to share, I guess, more of a, a personal story of, you know, not being ashamed of the one you love. Um, I don't know if you guys wrestle with this or, or not, but, you know, when I was in elementary school, um, you know, my grandmother would walk me to uh, school every morning. And uh, she was my caretaker, my guardian, uh, the one who really sacrificed so much uh, for me. And, and there came a, a time when I began to see all the flaws in my grandmother. She had osteoporosis, she was hunchbacked, um, and the kids started to make fun of me. And so at a certain point, I said, Grandma, I think this is where you should stop, right here. Right? You can walk me this far, but no further. Right? And that was usually when you know, all the kids you know, would start milling into the school. And my grandmother knew what was going on. Right? She understood that I was ashamed of her. Right? I was ashamed of being seen with her. And sometimes I feel, and not to make you feel guilty, but sometimes I feel like this is what we do with Christ. Right? He feels like kind of my grandma. Right? You know, He's great here. Sunday morning, right? No shame here. But then when we go to our our social events, when we go to our workplaces, when we go to our gatherings with our non-Christian friends, well, Grandma Jesus, you stay right here, right? You can't go any further than here, right? And, uh, you know, I'll take care of the rest. But, you know, in hindsight, um, you know, when I think of my grandmother who has passed away, I wish I, I could have taken back all those opportunities to walk with her and not care so much about what others thought. I wish I would have been proud of my relationship with her because in the end, she meant more to me than any of those little punks that I have now long forgotten, right? And I'm not saying your friends and coworkers are punks, right? But you will remember Christ for all of eternity. He will be with you for all of eternity. And you know, if you think about it, and I'm sure you're looking at me like, "Yeah, what a jerk." Right? You know, how could he do that to his poor, sweet grandmother, right, who did so much for him? And you see the ethical issue here, right? But if you think about it, you know, from a human terms, I had every right to be ashamed of her. She was not that cool, actually, right? And, you know, kids, I mean, kids being kids, right, you know, they probably had a right to make fun of me for those things. But when we look at Christ, the perfect son of God. Why are we ashamed? What is going on there where we feel the shame? And I think part of it is maybe an upside down view of the gospel. And this is what I mean by that. And this is, uh, we'll end this here and have the praise team uh, come up. The upside down gospel is this Christ is the one. Who had every right to reject us, to be ashamed of us on that cross, right? When we look at the scriptures, what we read is that he despised the shame. He looked at it and said, I will not be ashamed. I will not be ashamed of the people that God has given to me. I will not be ashamed of these people who every right, right? he had every right to deny and to reject. And to be ashamed of the one who gave his life for us is actually to turn that dynamic upside down. And if there is one thing that the scriptures remind us very, very uh, plainly, is that Jesus says, if you deny me before the Father, I will, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. That always used to scare me. I mean, at least in the beginning, used to provide some good motivation, right? To check my heart, to see where I stood in relationship to the one who gave his life for me. I'm going to leave you this quote from Piper when it comes to shame. And I think this is something that we need to be resolved in our hearts to say over and over again. I think this is what Christ must have said in his heart as he gave his life for us. According to Piper, it says, shame, I despise you. I will not yield to you. I will not give to you any satisfaction. You may do with me whatever you please in the short run. But I will not obey you or follow you or give in to you. I despise you, shame. And will not let you rule over me. And I think that was the heart of Christ as he thought of you, as he thought of us. I will not let shame overrule my love for my people. And in the same way he asked the same of us. Don't let shame overrule your love for Christ. Proclaim his name on the rooftops. Proclaim his name to the ends of the earth. Proclaim him because he's well worthy of it. Amen. Let's pray.